Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts for the things that we are about to consider, wonderful things from your word. Perhaps the greatest example of conversion ever, Lord, in terms of its consequence and fruit and in terms of what the person was converted from. Lord, We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would help us understand and apply these things. And we pray that all of us would remember that this is not about the veneration of any saint. It is about the veneration of the Savior who made them a saint. That you can do this from the raw materials of lost sinners that you can mold us and make us into people who are capable of worshiping you and honoring you, that you can pour this power into clay pots is beyond our fathoming. Lord, help us to celebrate you in this time and the work that you have done in all of us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Not that long ago, I heard some of my children discussing a redemption arc with reference to one of the programs that we regularly watched together, and they were saying that it was thought to be one of the greatest ever in film or TV. A redemption arc, if you don't know, is when a a character in a narrative begins as a villain, and then usually through a series of transformational events, generally of moral consequence, they are metamorphosed into a hero. I'll give you a couple of really well-known examples of this from modern times. The greatest has to be Darth Vader, you know, who goes from darkness to light. And my favorite, personally, is Ebenezer Scrooge, the miser, who becomes the great philanthropist, caretaker of many, including Tiny Tim. And there are many, many more examples besides these that I think you could come up with pretty quickly on your own. Now, redemption arcs are common features in literature, both of the fictional kind and the real kind. And I think the reason for this is because the need for redemption is so relatable to all of us. This is one example of we humans manifesting our status as image bearers and our need for God's grace in spite of ourselves. We would like to keep a lid on the fact that we were made in the image of God, but we just can't. It's who we are, so it keeps coming out. 
But I'd like to ask you, what is the greatest redemption arc? And when I ask that question, I mean as in ever, in any and all works of literature or film or stage, with reference to any story that's ever been told, irrespective of the medium through which it has been told. Now, that seems like a daunting question, and it seems like one that is also impossible to answer, given the scope that I just applied to that. You don't know all the stories that have ever been told, so how can you know what is the greatest redemption arc in any of those stories? But I would contend to you that there is a singular answer and that it could not be more clear, and you don't need to have an exhaustive knowledge of all the narratives that have ever been uh, conveyed in order to come to it. But before we get to this standalone example of redemption, I want to walk through the criteria with you so that you understand the conclusion when we get there. This, this is how we might rank the candidates. So first off, the greatest redemption arc ever has to involve redemption of a profound degree. You can't have a person go from a little bad to a little good. They can't be straddling the fence morally and leaning more to one side and then at the end of the account leaning more to the other side. They have to be transcontinental, so to speak, in terms of the distance that they travel with respect to morality. A person has to go from gravely evil to practicing an inversely proportional good or perhaps a, a proportionally greater good. But in order for the evil to be grave and the good to be great good, it also has to be real. So it can't be any fictional account. So, so long Vader and Scrooge and the like. And we love these stories for the realities that they reflect in the human spirit, but because the stories themselves are not real and the main characters are not real, they can't contend for the top spot. But then the kind of evil also matters here. And so too the kind of good. If this is the greatest redemption, then the person must be being redeemed from the worst evil and redeemed to the highest good. And of course, good and evil of the greatest kind are both expressed in spirituality because the consequences of this category of evil and good stretch out forever. They are eternal. Which is to say that this person's story must pertain to the gospel because the greatest moral significance belongs to the gospel because it alone saves souls. And the church is, of course, its sole steward, as we alone have been commissioned by Christ to be. So if you're looking for the greatest of all redemption arcs, it has to belong to an individual who was an overt, avowed enemy of Christ and his people, who became by grace a champion of the Christian faith. Perhaps a murderer of Christ's sheep who became a missionary on behalf of Christ, who became a martyr for the cause of Christ. If you know anything about church history for the last 2,000 years, given that we are a people of such rich history, you know that that applies to many saints. But there is one individual whose depravity pre-Christ and global impact upon the kingdom post-Christ vastly outstrips them all. And given that uh, you are an astute people and we are entering into Acts chapter 9, you may have assumed correctly that this individual of which I speak is Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul of Christ. And we will begin to learn his conversion story or redemption arc today, verse by verse, exegeting and applying as we go. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 1 of Acts, and going through verse 19a, not the whole thing, just the first part. Uh, and today we're not going to exhaust the text entirely. By the way, I'm barely going to touch verse 16 
but next week I'm coming back to it, and we will focus primarily on that, and that is, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts 9, we're going to start with the first two verses. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. There is a whole lot to unpack, even in these first two verses, but I'm going to start with some simple yet critical pieces of historical context. First off, you can see there we were called followers of the way. The reason we were called this is because of the well-known and common pronouncement of our Lord recorded, for example, in John 14, 6, I am the way. And a lot of people, when they look at that passage, do not understand that way then becomes the qualifier uh, for what comes next. So I am the way and the truth, meaning the truthful way, and the life, meaning the living way, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. I mean, Jesus as the way is an acknowledgement that his followers believed he was the way ultimately of salvation. And so followers of the way is actually a title given to us by our detractors, by our enemies. And as such, it's shockingly accurate and good. I'd be very happy to be called this by my enemies in our day. It's a whole lot better than what we actually are called, which is like cisgendered Christian nationalists, domestic terrorists, yada, yada. It'd be a great grace to us to go back to that. Next, understand that the letters that Saul sought from the high priest gave him powers of extradition from other vassal states of Rome, which pretty much every state, at least in that vicinity, was a vassal state of Rome, like Israel. And Caesar himself had granted this authority to the high priest as the chief indigenous ruler of Israel. So here Saul is seeking to exercise these extradition powers in Damascus, But as he will later explain to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he used this authority regularly to, quote, pursue, meaning Christians, even to many different foreign cities. And finally, let's understand some things about Saul's destination, which was Damascus. Damascus was a very important ancient city. It was about 135 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem. It was a Roman province of Syria, but like Israel, it was quasi-independent as well. So it had its, its own government, which was still subject to Rome. And more relevant to, to our study, it had a very high population of Jews, well into the tens of thousands. And these tens of thousands of supposedly Orthodox Jews were going to operate for Saul as a dragnet in which he was going to catch Christians. Again, verse 2, Saul asked for letters from the high priest to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you, where did the apostles start evangelizing in the book of Acts? It was the temple, correct? In Jerusalem. And the reason for this is obvious. Well, first of all, they were commanded to do that and go to the house of Israel first by Jesus. But you'd go to the temple first because the people there are studying the word of God, which all points to Christ. And now at this point, Christ is risen. So you can say undeniably that he is the fulfillment of all the messianic passages. So these are the people that you go to first for all those reasons. Well, for the same reasons, the synagogues in Damascus would have been where the Damascus converts to Christianity started evangelizing first and focused on primarily 
So Saul, commissioned by the high priest, is about to go to all of these synagogues and pump every local priest and parishioner for the names of anybody and everybody who has even mentioned the name Jesus. And he's about to do this in a manner totally devoid of anything that could be considered basic decency. If it is a man, according to the text, he's going to take him. If it's a woman, according to verse 2, he's going to take her too. One may assume that their children probably are not safe from him either. There really is not a line for Saul. And that's what you're seeing. And the reason for this is because he, amongst Jewish authorities, is a rare, true believer. You can look in uh, verse 1 and see what Luke characterizes him as. What is it? A murderer. But as far as Saul is concerned, he's not a murderer. He's a standard bearer for religious purity. He thinks of himself as maybe another Phineas, which you may remember as the gentleman who ran through uh, those who were committing harlotry with the Moabites in the book of Numbers, or maybe another Elijah who wielded the sword against the prophets of Baal and hacked them to pieces, or perhaps especially a Mattathias Maccabees or others of the Maccabees. It was they who rebelled when Antiochus Epiphanes, if you recall, slaughtered a pig in the temple And this is very strong language, but as far as Saul is concerned, Jesus was akin to that pig. He was the false sacrifice. He was the blasphemer who claimed to have come in amongst the people of God and been the true sacrificial lamb. And now his followers are claiming the same thing about him. So in opposition to Jesus, to his mind, Saul is wielding the sword for the same righteous cause that his forefathers did. That is the preservation of God's law, the preservation of God's truth, and the preservation of God's people. Uh, We noted numerous times, in particular through our study in John, that Caiaphas and his ilk, by by all appearances, are just superficial hacks who believe nothing and only want power and money. Saul is not like that. Him and his ilk were spoken of by Christ in John 16, 2 through 3. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father, or me. And consistent with this, when Paul himself spoke of his former life, he referred to himself then as a zealot. Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Now, zealots can be egregiously wrong, as is certainly the case here with Saul, but they are certainly not insincere. This is very clear also from his recollection of these things at a later point to Agrippa, Acts 26, 9 through 11. I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, no, punished, I tried to force them to blaspheme. You can insert torture for punish there, because that's what it means. Tried to force them to blaspheme, so through torture he tried to get them to renounce the name of Christ, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. When Saul murdered Christian men, he was doing it to the glory of God in his own mind. The same was true as when he ripped mothers from their nursing babes and oversaw their murder. It was all, as Jesus said, service to God from his perspective. Now, all of this needs to be 
remembered as we move forward because it's the backdrop for what comes next. What we have learned here is that prior to his conversion, God has not softened the soil of this man's heart at all. He did this with many of us. Many of us in our testimony, we we recognize as we look back in hindsight the gentle wooing of the Spirit and how he was moving and using this circumstance and this individual and softening and softening and softening until he gave us ultimately that heart of flesh and true conversion. That's not happening here. Unlike the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul had no light. Even though he had God's word, he lived perpetually in darkness. And he very much remained in that state until the very moment of his conversion. And Luke wants us all to understand this. That Saul's conversion was immediate and cataclysmic and owing to no previous experience or divine work in his heart, which is not to say that things were not brought to bear from previous experiences at a later point, but not in his conversion. In terms of a stony heart, to go back to the words of Ezekiel versus a fleshly heart, Saul's heart at the open of Acts 9 right before he gets converted, is a brick. And that's why verse 1 opens with, Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Everybody is a trophy of God's grace who has been saved, who has become a Christian. That is not to say that we all testify to His grace in the same same way. Indeed, we don't. The one that is wooed by the Spirit of the course of many years testifies especially of what? The Lord's long-suffering that he pursues us in his love and pursues us and pursues us and pursues us until ultimately he wins us. What a profound testimony to the Lord and his working and his grace. But Saul's conversion is going to testify especially of the fact that the sovereign of all things needs nor seeks any man's permission to act in creation or salvation, not even to the end that he saves his soul. And continuing in verse 3, we will progress more deeply into this lesson. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing, and leading them by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. Now so much has happened there in those verses that I just read to you that it is difficult for me to organize it honestly, but here are the observations that derive from that in the most logical ordering that at least I am capable of. First off, this was an extraordinarily bright light. Okay, according to Paul's Later retelling of this account in Acts 22, this took place at about noon. So you got the Middle Eastern sun burning in the sky, and it was dim compared to this. And we should also here address the idiotic notion that perhaps you have heard that Saul saw a light because he was an epileptic. He had a seizure. Have you heard this? I'm surprised that I'm the first to tell you of it now. It's a common atheistic trope, common as it is idiotic. So to say that this was the result of a seizure and therefore he sees a bright light is to say that this is a private experience of Saul. Is it, according to the text, a private experience or is it perceived by the people who are around him? It is perceived by the people who are around him. Also, I really do not understand why atheists continue to do this. If your stated position 
is that the New Testament is invalid because it is merely the writings of men. Why don't you just call it quits there and stop trying to give explanations? It is almost as though you know that that explanation is not sufficient, so you go further. Next, Saul has not simply seen a great light. He has seen the post-ascension Christ, and there are a number of verses that say this in the book of Acts, but the one closest to where we are now is Acts 9.27. It says this, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. It is the Lord, and largely as a consequence of this, next point, Saul is terrified. And this is an intuitive gleaning from the text and from the fact that he doesn't eat or drink for the next three days. And the reason why he does not drink or eat for the next three days, well, there are many, and we'll learn this in verse 9, but certainly one of them, is the fact that he's a little raw from having met the king of all creation in the way that he did. But here let's recognize that terror in response to a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of God, manifestation of God, or manifestation of Christ, is nothing new in Scripture. It is, in fact, the rule. An example of this would be Moses at the burning bush. Isaiah is another example. John in Revelation. But the fear here is very different than the kind of fear that Moses, Isaiah, John, or the like felt. Because this is not merely, and I say merely advisedly, but this is not merely the terror that mortals feel in the presence of God because they are still sinners and he is holy. This isn't that at all. This is the fear that an enemy of God feels when meeting him for the first time as an enemy. I want you to imagine, if you will, try to fill his shoes for a moment, that you have ravaged the church of Christ. You are an anti-Christ apologist. You live to denounce the Lord Jesus. You have apprehended Christians to the end that the Sanhedrin imprisons or murders them. You have tortured the people of God in order to get them to renounce the name of Christ. You have claimed Yahweh as your God, which is itself profound blasphemy considering what you actually believe and teach, but you vehemently denied at the same time that Jesus was Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity, which is, of course, also to deny the fundamental nature of God given that God in his fundamental nature is triune. And now you are currently on your way to yet another city to ravage yet more and effectively eat more of Christ's sheep. But then you're visited by the Jesus who, as far as you're concerned, should be in hell because he was a heretic and a false teacher and a blasphemer of the lowest order, but he's not in hell. He's right in front of you, shining brighter than any natural light ever has. And by the way, there's no chance that he has not taken your persecution of his church personally, given that his first words to you are, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then you respond with, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Oh, and besides all of this, you are now flat on your back and also blind. One commentator calls this an assault, as in Jesus assaulted Saul. And honestly, that fits. It fits really well. Whatever this is, it's certainly not a casual meet and greet. But the point is that Saul is quite distressed, no doubt. And in all probability, Saul knew the answer to his own question before he asked it. That question being, who are you, Lord? Ask yourself, if you've devoted 
your life to opposition of Jesus who claimed to be God, and this was truly a righteous pursuit, that w- then when the God who you are worshiping righteously and serving righteously finally comes to visit you, wouldn't it be to offer you some sort of commendation? I say, good job? And instead of that, this meeting is a violent assault, leaving you temporarily incapacitated and blind. You might then be inclined to wonder largely within yourself, hmm, why is this happening? This is a strange and unanticipated outcome, given what I thought I was doing. And then you might audibly ask, say, who are you, Lord? And then reverting back to your own inner monologue, you might add, and please don't say Jesus, please don't say Jesus, please don't say Jesus. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Next, let it be known to all the enemies of Christ that it is impossible to do harm to his people without doing the same to him. As we all know, Jesus is the good shepherd, and much may be said about this, but it is certainly true that the good shepherd takes any assault on any of his sheep very, very personally. And he will deal with all of these assaults personally. And that is, in fact, why he carries a rod. And Saul is discovering this fact about him right now. And in addition to Christ being the good shepherd, he's also the good bridegroom. And there ain't nothing more sacred to a man than his wife. You can take a guy who is naturally disposed towards gentleness and meekness and grace and assault his wife and watch him transform into something quite primal right before your eyes. Jesus, likewise, is humble and meek, and he is gracious beyond all measure, yet little is more sacred to him than his bride. And so all who have harmed her are either going to be reconciled to him by his blood in this life, or else he will swallow them in his wrath in perhaps this life, but definitely also in the next. Now this lesson is a relevant warning to all the enemies of Christ in every age, but perhaps especially so in ours. And the lesson is made even more relevant for us in our American context because Saul is an acting agent of the government. The high priest who gave the letters ruled the Sanhedrin who was acting as a proxy government beneath Rome. So surely there is a lesson here for an American FBI and DOJ that protects pedophiles, prosecutes their political enemies, many of whom are Christians, protects infanticide, but allows Christian pregnancy centers to be firebombed and pursues no justice on their behalf. One ponders the end of people like this. You have used your God-appointed rule, your God-appointed rule, as his delegated authorities to oppress, imprison, and murder his people, the very same people that Christ himself bought with his own blood. But unlike Saul, most of you are not going to meet him in this life to a salvific end. Rather, the first time you're going to meet him is going to be in the next life. And you will hear the question, while perhaps still bewildered by the sights and sounds that surely accompany the transition to the eternal state, say a blinding light, maybe. Such and such governor, such and such agent or department head or president, why did you persecute me? And they will surely say something like, who are you, Lord? And he will say, I am Jesus, whom you have persecuted. A husband of the wife you sought to despoil, and I have come to take the vengeance rightly due a jealous husband. Proverbs 6.34-35 through 35 speaks directly to human marriage, but a correlation can and certainly must be made to the union of Christ and we his bride. 
The error says this, for jealousy and rage is a man. You can insert Christ there, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. I have often imagined what this pitiful scene would look like. An assailer, an assaulter of the bride of Christ prostrated before him, genuflecting, trying to bargain with him through tears and sobbing, snot-faced, no dignity. But for this husband, once this life is through, there will be no mercy, there will be no quarter offered or given, there will be no compromise, and there will be no possibility of forgiveness and restitution ever. You will be delivered to the flame and you will abide there forevermore. So in the event that there is some agent of this government listening to this recording as it is dispersed on the internet, now or at some future point, repent while you may if indeed the Lord may forgive you. But this isn't only a warning to the enemies of Christ. This is also a great comfort for the believing. Here is yet another example of Christ being our sympathetic high priest. Not only is he sympathetic to us in that he has experienced what is common to us in his earthly life while he was here, but he is sympathetic in that he still experiences all that we do even as we do. And this, of course, happens through his spirit. Because the spirit of Christ never leaves us, there is no burden that we bear alone. And on the positive, there is no feeling of joy that he has not felt and in fact caused. And on the negative, there is no sorrow of ours born of persecution for his namesake that Christ does not feel through his Holy Spirit. Which is to say that Christ's sympathies for his people are totally unlike our sympathies for each other. Our sympathies for each other, though they need to be given, are based upon common experiences. This common experiences make certain experiences relatable, and thus we're able to be sympathetic. But our sympathies must be limited because we've never stood exactly where you have. There's no one who can stand exactly in your shoes. Only you can. Except Jesus, of course. If you are a Christian, listen to me now. According to the plain language of the text, If it has happened to you, it has happened to him too. If it's happened to you, it's happened to him too. And so not only does this sympathetic high priest know exactly what you're experiencing and the nature of your pain because he is with you every step, he also has the ability to give you the grace to endure those circumstances. And you can be sure that in your greatest hour of testing, the Father will not turn his face away from you because the Son has died for you. And now the Father's grace is mediated through him, and it is constant, it is everlasting. And finally, from this section, Saul does exactly what he's told. Because Saul, as it turns out, has been converted right now. Verses 8 and 9, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And now you might say, well, Saul was going to Damascus anyhow. It's not really a change of plans. Oh, he was going to the same place, but certainly not in the same way and certainly not under these terms. Saul was a religious hero to the Jews. It wasn't just him who saw himself this way. It was them too. And he was about to enter Damascus as a conquering hero to be seen in that light by these tens of thousands. And then he was going to do more of the heroing for which he had become so 
famous, which amounted to dragging more Christians off to their deaths. Now he will enter the same city that he was going to enter, but he will enter there with nothing left of who he was. Saul has certainly already been converted. When you go from every personal action that you take being an act of rebellion against God to being in total humble submission to his commands, you have been converted. If this is not conversion, I would love for you to tell me exactly what is, or at least what the effects of conversion are. And you also have here one of the greatest examples of irony in literature ever. Saul never saw God until God blinded him. And we have all sung, I was blind, but now I see. And for Saul, the song sounds more like I had to become blind in order to see. Because while his eyes are shut, his soul is certainly opened. And open indeed for the first time. And that's why he spends three days fasting and praying. And we know that he's praying because of verse 11 in the statement. For he, meaning Saul, is praying. He was already doing this the moment he started fasting. And let's dwell for a moment on conversion as we observe it here. Conversion is all at once an incomprehensible mystery. And yet a simple, clearly observed phenomena identified by a predictable pattern. And the pattern here is this. Saul was rebuked in his sins. Saul repented, demonstrated by his obedience to Christ. And Saul prayed because the spiritual newborn always mouths whatever they can to their parent. This passage demonstrates that if a person is genuinely converted, that will be preceded with a sweet time of prayer. In fact, you may look back upon your life as a Christian, at a later point, and recognize that the sweetest hour of prayer you ever had was right after you met the Lord for the first time. And any dope who's ever doted on a woman knows why this is. We men are dulled to who we are, which is not difficult, because we are pretty dull ourselves. We understand ourselves. We're not exactly an enigma. We're simple machines driven by simple impulses towards predictable ends, but then comes woman, as in capital W, capital O, capital M, capital A, capital N. And she is an enigma, wrapped in a question mark. But she's a question that we cannot bear to leave unanswered, because even if on some imperceptible level we recognize that in her there is a solution to a problem that exists in our deepest levels. Simply stated, and going back to the Genesis account of creation, she is what we need. And part of this is that she is fascinating, frustrating too, but fascinating nonetheless. She is, you might say, the technicolor to our black and white. Without her, we machines would only have the next task, whatever that may be. She is what makes the task mean something in the natural order. And she also answers in due time questions that we desperately needed answered if only we had known to ask them. So in these situations, she is both the question and the answer. And this is the reason why I've often responded to people who ask, why do you pray with, why did you talk to your spouse before they were your spouse to the wee hours of the morning? Why at some point didn't you reach a, a, a point of saturation? Why did you keep pressing and pressing and pressing? Perhaps because the draw between the two of you was too strong for you to ever accept that now you know enough? There was no enough and Saul is experiencing something like this now ad infinitum. Because as wonderful as our ladies are, this is not some mysterious yet finite and flawed woman. 
that he has been introduced to. This is the God of all creation who has scraped him from Satan's boot and now empowered him to have an audience with him. And he is meeting him for the first time. And by the way, this is the God that Saul swore he knew his whole life and has only just learned that he did not know him at all and that he is, in fact, meeting him for the first time. So this is the courting conversation that lasts to the wee hours of the morning, so to speak. And Saul, prior to his conversion, was, with respect to God, one of the most educated fools that's ever walked or crawled out of some garbage seminary. And that's saying a lot because we got a lot of garbage seminaries. Let's just say that nothing that Gamaliel ever taught him about the worship of Yahweh prepared him for this. Saul had great zeal. He learned that. Had a whole lot of religiosity. But his religion was dead and so was he. And now you have a newly living being speaking to the being who is life itself. And no doubt praying back to him scriptures that he studied his whole life but only just understood Maybe praying something like, Dear Lord, thank you for the promise that you made through Ezekiel that the time would come when you would take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And thank you that that time has now come for me. What a time of prayer this must have been. Imagine the kinds of prayer that can be prayed when you have the sudden combination of what must have been the entirety of the Old Testament memorized, or almost all of it, And now the supernatural illumination of the Holy Spirit of God so that all of these things unfold for the first time. It's this passage and that passage, but they were all disjointed and disconnected and now there is a through line running through all of them and it is Christ and Him crucified and risen on the third day. This was the point all the time and He couldn't see it, but now He can. I am confident that if you could see Saul's thoughts at this time, you couldn't have kept up. As I was meditating on these things, what occurred to me was a tree diagram. And it popped into my mind's eye. And if you've ever seen these, you have the one thought or concept, and then it branches down, and you have six more. And each one of those branches down, and you have six more coming from each. I think that explodes out of the man's mind and soul, given that what he knows about the Old Testament is now for the first time given actual meaning. What a thing to know so much about somebody, but to never actually know them. And yet that is true of the majority of religious practitioners in our day, including many we have known and who have passed through this church. They have Bible verses to spare, but those verses all speak to a God they don't know. Again, back to Jesus' words. An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Unbeknownst to Saul prior to this moment, this had always been true of him, but it is not true now. Now he sits in the blindness that the Lord has put upon him and in the darkness that results from it, not eating, not drinking, still reeling from the Damascus Road experience, but a child of darkness no longer. Or rather, as he would later write, 2 Corinthians 4, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. 
not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Or now you're just being derivative. Paul, you're just plagiarizing your own testimony. Well, we'll let it go because what a testimony to plagiarize. So not to change the subject here, but what would you say would be better than one supernatural vision? How about two supernatural visions happening simultaneously? We'll see this as we continue in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. So as Ananias is having a vision of Saul, Saul is having a vision of Ananias, and Saul is learning how he's going to be helped, and Ananias is at the same time learning that he is the help. But the greater objective of these visions is extremely telling. The real reason for this connection being made by the Lord Christ is to enable Saul to meet and be helped by his new family because Christianity has lived in community. In many senses, our faith is far more communal than it is personal, and yet the great weight in our day is placed upon the personal and not the communal. Christ saved his people, Matthew 1. As you go through, in particular the New Testament, you can see individual exercises of faith. But I assure you, taken as a whole, if you really keep track, you will see far more of the communal expressions of faith. And as we'll see next week, nobody's going to be tried and tested the way that Paul will. So if ever there were going to be a Christian that really doesn't need the local church, which of course there isn't, it is definitely not going to be him. He will be exceptional as he is empowered by God to be, but he will not be superhuman. He is going to hurt and need help just like everybody else, indeed far more, because he is going to be hurt in far greater ways for the cause of Christ. So it would seem here that the design of Jesus in this whole situation is to train Saul now to rely upon his new family, which is an essential lesson to us all and one that will serve him particularly well. I mean, I'd ask you, what else would be the reason for making Ananias the vessel through which Saul was healed? First off, Jesus did not have to blind him. And if he did insist on blinding him, was he not very capable of intervening himself and remedying the situation? Indeed, he was. But he has orchestrated a solution to this situation that teaches Saul to rely upon the ministry of another. Saul needs the church, and the church very much needs him. Although he is a freshly minted Christian, so new in fact that he still has that new car smell, it is not too early for him to learn this lesson in the same way that it's not too early for any of us to learn this lesson. If you're discipling somebody, this is like 101. This is the first thing that I teach anybody when I personally disciple them, the necessity of the local church. Because as I've often said, and sometimes I think makes me sound like a heretic, every misunderstanding of God can be overcome. All of them. Every misunderstanding of who man is according to Scripture, of doctrine and theology, only the person who dismisses the necessity of the local church cannot be helped. Because all those other issues are corrected through the local church. Those are the organism, organisms, 
that the Lord has given pastors and teachers to and those to personally disciple individuals as well in the truth. And in addition to this, and more specific to Saul, he really, really, really needs to be connected with other Christians because as a consequence of his new faith, he has unquestionably been left without a friend in the world. And that is not hyperbolic. Every friendship and likely familiar relationship that he did have was with people who hated Christ. This was like the common bond that brought them together. This is what united them. In Ephesians, Paul would explain the spiritual condition of the Gentile who was estranged from God, but in the language that he used, he may as well have been describing his own natural condition as a result of converting to Christ with respect to all the relationships that he has lost. He called them aliens. He called them strangers afar off. This is what he has now become to everyone that he has ever known. Paul didn't just write later, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This sentiment was definitional of his Christian life in a way that it isn't for just about anybody else. It's true for all of us. I don't think it's this true for any of us, not at least in this church, as it was for him. What lies behind you, Christian? Again, for all of us, something does, but for Saul, everything does. He's not going to live in the same place. He's not going to do the same thing for a living. To have risen to his position in Judaism usually requires a wife. Do you hear anything about that in the rest of the New Testament? No, so you may reasonably deduce, as many have, that he lost her here. He has no one. He has nothing. Yet what lies ahead is Yahweh and his people, a representative of whom is Ananias to him. And nothing in his past compares with this, and that is why he will later refer to it all as rubbish. And for all these reasons and more, the Lord does not wait to connect his newest son with the rest of his children. He's going to do it through an elder son. But that elder son does have a few questions before he goes to meet Saul in particular. Going on in verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, some commentators have been very hard on Ananias, on account of him asking this question. And I think harder than is perhaps warranted. The idea is that he lacks faith. I am more so willing to leave a question to simply be a question and not to necessarily interpret it as questioning in a sinful sense. Questioning the Lord is never justified, but asking a question, given the current circumstances, seems to me to be pretty reasonable. And the idea that this is just a simple question seems to be validated by the fact that when the answer is given, there's no follow-up, there's no Job-like back and forth. Its interaction essentially amounts to, how can this be? And then Jesus says, here's how it is, and then Ananias effectively says, okay. Notice also what Saul is referred to. Go for he is a chosen what? Fill in the blank. What was it? Instrument. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Good synonym for instrument might be tool. 
And to say that Saul is a tool is to recognize two critical truths about him and every Christian servant. First, we, like him, have no inerrant power. What does a tool accomplish on its own? Collecting dust. That's it. So an unused tool only has potential value, only has potential power. It does not actually possess actual value until and unless it is picked up by a skilled craftsman and used properly. So if the value only becomes actual if the tool is used, and if its use is entirely dependent upon the actions of the craftsman, then the tool has no value or power apart from the craftsman. On account of this unfortunate reality, I sadly have many fine tools occupying my garage, and they have never yet gotten together and performed any task without me, as inconvenient as that is. I think the same is probably true of you. Same is true of Saul. Same is true of me as an instrument in my Redeemer's hand. And further, no one tool is essential. The craftsman is essential. If one tool is taken from him, another will be picked up by him. And you have had a profound example of this already as you put together the circumstance with Stephen with the circumstance with Saul. Saul leads the murder of one of the greatest instruments that the Christian faith has. And then Saul himself is raised up by the Lord to become the greatest missionary in the history of the church. The Lord Jesus is critical. None of us are. He is the Lord of the harvest, and he can raise up workers, and he does. But that is in his power. But second, because we are all tools created and wielded by the God of all power, our potential value will become actual value. Because God has not created tools to then simply leave them to collect dust. This is not the way any of this works. Because we are tools created and wielded by the God of all power, our potential value measured in our contributions to Christ's kingdom are limitless in reflection of the capacity of the being wielding us. So let me reduce all of this to the following simple statement. Because we are only instruments, we can do nothing. But because we are instruments of God, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that latter bit is why Moses was not expressing humility when he said before the Lord, I can't do this because my mouth doesn't work right. That's not humility at all. To acknowledge that you can do nothing apart from God is indeed humble. To acknowledge that God cannot do whatever he wants through you is raging pride. Because he is the God who brought everything into existence from nothing. Surely he can pull whatever he wants out of you who already exist. And if anyone in the history of everybody had a valid point consisting of, Lord, I am really, really, really not the man for this job considering my past, it was Saul. But because, as Paul will say, yet it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, Saul will become Paul, and Paul will become the greatest missionary in the history of the church. What the twelve are to the house of Israel, he will be to the whole spiritual house of Israel, scattered from every nation on earth. No single individual missionary is more responsible for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant than this man. Through Jesus, every nation of the world would be blessed. Through Paul, the message of that blessing would be carried to them. My, what a family tree is going to descend from this man. 
In fact, in my preparation for this sermon, on your behalf, I went on Ancestry.com and 23andMe, and I have the official printout of Saul's family line. Would you like me to read it to you? Here it is. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And of course, I was being facetious. That's Revelation 7, 9 through 12. But the genesis of it is Acts 9. And all this from a murderer? Oh, not a chance. None of this came from a murderer. All of this came from a new creation. As Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because, as he also wrote in Romans 5.6, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Thus, Ephesians 2.8-9, as he also stated, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. To the end that, as he also said, Ephesians 2.10, We who are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, would walk in them, motivated by 1 Corinthians 13.13, Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Because Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, skimming, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved, having also believed we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now, Paul may have occupied the same physical space as Saul before him. And they shared the same past. But Saul died on the road to Damascus. And Paul was born again in his place. And now that Saul has spiritual eyes to see, the Lord in his grace will give him back the use of his biological eyes as well. Pick up again in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, he knows who he is now, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now, the giving of the Spirit here needs to be understood. This is not a reference to the Spirit's work in general. You had better believe that in order to take a murderer and make him a saint, it required the Holy Spirit of God. So what is being referenced here is the anointing of the Spirit to accomplish the special task that occurs right there in the text, bearing Christ's name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel and suffering for his namesake. 
Well, Samson was a good old covenant example of what's happening here. He was one of Saul's forefathers who was anointed by the Holy Spirit and thereby empowered to tear down this vast pagan edifice upon their heads to the end of their own destruction. Saul has received a similar anointing, but instead of the net result being the destruction of the pagans, it will be their salvation. And as one such prior pagan myself, who is the beneficiary of his ministry, I say to this, praise God for the glory of his grace. And we began at the beginning with the concept of a redemption arc. And this concept, I think, is well-fitting when it's applied to Saul slash Paul, with one exception. An ark, in order to be an ark, requires a beginning as it does an end. Have a beginning point, ark, end point. And the beginning is obvious for us, we just observed it. But the end is where our application of this concept starts to fall apart. There is, in the strictest sense, no end point. Because the blessings of this never end. The Lord at present, 2,000 years later, is still filling out the ministry of Paul. And the fruit of it is everlasting. It will always be. He is the spiritual father of us all. We are all his spiritual children and we always will be. And we do pray that if you are not yet, you would come to Christ even today. And to this end, I will leave you who do not know the Lord with a song that I hope will become your testimony too. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed, redeemed his child and forever I am. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, no language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of his presence with me does continually dwell. I think of my blessed Redeemer, I worship him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guards all my footsteps and gives to me songs in the night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of this man, and we thank you for the testimony of this man, Lord, because it is the testimony of your grace. Nobody who observes who Saul was thinks that he will naturally become what he became. Everybody understands that that isn't going to happen. Naturally, Lord. And that's why you did it. Because everybody knows that it was your power that raised him up. And that all he was able to accomplish was only a matter of your grace. He was merely an instrument, Lord. And we thank you that you did pick him up. We thank you that you did wield him to the end that you did. We thank you that you took that wretch and made him a saint. And we thank you that we will meet him yet in glory. And we thank you for the hope that we see in his testimony, Lord, because we know and understand that if you can do that with him, you can do anything you want with any of us. We praise you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.ChristRockChurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. 